Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the term decolonization has become a popular framework to analyze current events in Eurasia, interrogate its history, and even imagine its future. Academics, journalists, as well as government officials around the world have summoned the specter of decolonization for various ends in the context of the current war. In Western academia, there is no shortage of conferences and papers on the theme of decolonization as it relates to Russia and Ukraine. Think tanks affiliated with the U.S. State Department have even held conferences calling for the decolonization of Russia, while at the same time, Russian politicians claim, either directly or indirectly, to be defending the interests of the colonized world from the West that colonized them. Both the academic discourse and political instrumentalization of the term decolonization has created far more misconceptions than clarity. There is a growing distance between the historical meaning of decolonization and the politics associated with it, and the contemporary uses of these terms in the context of Eurasia today. This distance has managed to even deploy decolonization in defense of the colonial structures, anti-colonial movements of the 20th century fought to overturn. One way to clarify such discrepancies is to put the context of today's Eurasia and the uses of the term decolonization in conversation with the robust 20th century tradition of anti-colonial and decolonial thought. To better understand the meaning of decolonization, as well as its uses and misuses in relation to contemporary Eurasia, we invited Gio Mar and Volodymyr Ishenko on to reimagining Soviet Georgia. In this discussion, we have brought two complementary thinkers from different intellectual backgrounds. Gio, a political theorist, author, and teacher who has written extensively on anti-colonial movements, decolonial thought, and the political ideas of Franz Fanon, as well as Volodymyr, a sociologist originally from Ukraine who has written on contemporary Ukrainian politics, civil society, nationalism, and in December 2022, published an article in the New Left Review entitled Ukrainian Voices, which critiques the use of decolonization and politics of representation in the context of Ukraine today. Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Today we have two guests, uh, Gio Mar and Volodymyr Ishenko. Welcome to both of you to the podcast. Uh, so why don't you introduce yourselves? My name is Gio Mar. Uh, I'm a sort of writer and organizer based in Philadelphia, and I'm the coordinator of the W.E.B. Du Bois uh, Movement School for Abolition and Reconstruction. I'm uh, Volodymyr Ishenko. Uh, I study uh, revolutions, protests, nationalism, the civil society, um, mostly about Ukraine. Uh, I'm originally also uh, from Ukraine, uh, but now I work 
at uh, Freie uh, Universität Berlin. Okay, great. So uh, today we uh, we're going to be discussing this concept that is uh, quite you know on everybody's mind these days. It seems is the term uh, decolonization. And so, uh, Geo, I want to start with you. Um, I'm wondering if you could just describe and explain what is decolonization as a concept and how has it been used uh, both as like a theoretical political uh, basis and as a real movement um, over the past uh, century? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. Um, and, you know, decolonization, of course, presupposes an understanding and in what colonialism is in colonization as a process. Um, and, and these are incredibly notoriously slippery terms. They're terms that overlap and intersect with many others. The, the overlap, for example, between colonization, colonialism, and imperialism has led to a lot of sort of, uh, you know, confusion um, throughout the years. But we also need to understand, I think it's crucial to, to understand that these words, that all words really gain their meaning in context, right? And so they gain their meaning um, in certain ways, and when we speak of colonialism and colonization, we're not simply talking about this sort of universal trans-historical process of people moving and using power to settle and, and occupy and, and control other territories. We're really talking about something that could roughly be understood as modern colonialism, right? Um, and, and again, to emphasize, that brings with it a certain kind of content, right? In other words, we're talking about a process that was largely Euro-American, right? Um, we're talking about a process that built um, conceptual apparatus to justify um, its sort of aggression and control, um, oppositions between very famously um, civilization and barbarism, um, the distinction as Stuart Hall emphasized between the emergence of the, the West versus the rest. And, and we know that these categories emerge oppositionally through the process of European colonization of the globe. We also know that um, global colonialism and coloniality as a, as a global structure um, is uh, you know, bound up with and an essential part of the emergence of capitalism as a global world system, right? So we're also talking about this economic um, globalization of this process. Um, and central to that understanding, um, I think, is, uh, you know, is and has been the question of race. So when we speak of racial capitalism, or when we speak of the centrality of race in European processes of, uh, you know, of colonization, um, these were a central part of it, right? Um, Fanon, Franz Fanon says very famously, he says, you know, the French, you know, in, in German occupied France were still humans, right? We're not simply talking about, again, in, uh, you know, an empty conceptual uh, you know framework in which any occupation of any territory um, and any settlement constitutes colonialism um, we're talking about something that emerges out of a certain uh, you know um, context and so we don't want to simply um, abstract that category and haphazardly apply it to um, you know to any form of uh, aggression invasion um, settlement and, and occupation within that of course there are many global differences right there's exploitation colonialisms there's uh, you know which are primarily centered on resources. Um, there's sort of the general category of settler colonialism, which is very much about the, the occupation of land. And there are also colonial processes that are more centered on the uh, exploitation of labor, although these are always kind of mixed together in, in varying kinds of, of, of ratio. All this has crucial implications, I think, for 
how we then understand decolonization, right? Um, and again, the history and the historical context and the development of this idea is crucial for thinking through um, how we, um, you know, how we use that word and that concept today. It's always been, I think, decolonization has always been kind of fraught um, and, and has always been riven by this tension around um, the degree to which we're talking about mere independence, to put it in one sense, um, or something more like social revolution. Right. And this, again, emerges historically. If you look at early Latin American independence movements, decolonization from Spain, um, you're talking about, um, you know, processes that in part because of who was leading them, the kind of class fragments and racial fragments that were leading them were very much about independence for um, the elites that were still very much dominant white, you know, um, and, and wealthy elites. Um, but as you move forward um, toward our contemporary understanding of decolonization, things grow more substantive. Right? You see this in the Cuban revolution, which is about independence, but also about radically transforming society. You see it in, uh, then uh, of course, in the um, in and through the Mexican revolution, and you see it fundamentally in these questions of 20th century decolonization, the major wave of decolonial struggles that break out primarily in the 50s and 60s, um, and which are struggling very frontally with this question of whether or not it's sufficient to claim political power or whether that leaves in its wake um, what becomes a very sort of key concept for the 20th century, which is neocolonialism, right? Um, as a result of all of this, I think de decolonization has this kind of expansive tendency in the 20th century where um, there's this realization, of course, that it's not simply about uh, you know, taking power of the state. It's not simply about political independence. Neocolonialism points toward this sort broader economic relationship, as does something like economic dependency or the understanding of the world system. Um, but even beyond that, you know, there's a growing recognition that colonialism and, 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 you know, is about more than simply economics as well, right? So you've got the political and the economic, but you've also got more. You've got this, you know, growing uh, awareness of, say, cultural colonialism, of um, epistemological colonialism. All of this generates, um, uh, uh, you know, again, this this expansive uh, nature of the of the category of decolonization. Um, Fanon puts these two things together in a very clear way when he speaks of two stages or two phases of decolonization, which are never entirely separate from one another. Of course, the first of which centers on independence and centers on regain, you know, reclaiming uh, sort of sovereignty and, and political control. Um, but the second is much more about this transition, which for him must always follow into a social revolution, into the dramatic reshaping um, of the entirety of uh, the life of the, you know, the former colony. But what this means has many pieces, right? It's geographical, it's territorial. It's got to do with not only claiming control over the economy, but transforming what that economy looks like. It's about transforming the entire structure of the state, which is inherited from sort of European colonialism. Um, it's about, you know, changing the direction of the, you know, the way that sort of the railways are situated in a country, serving exploitation, serving extraction. All of, I think, these this, this expansiveness then becomes, I think, um, you know, uh, expressed more recently in categories like coloniality. Um, coloniality, if you look at the sort of Latin American literature on the subject, refers to the many ways in which um, colonialism was far more than political and, and simply economic control. 
um, the fact that it involved, of course, racial categories and involved gender and sexual identities and involved the reshaping of many of the categories through which social life was understood. Um, and, you know, and fundamentally what this meant was that decolonization was a far broader and a far longer process, right? Um, that formal independence may have been achieved now 200 years ago in many sort of Latin American countries, but that the tasks of decoloniality and decolonization as a long unfinished process means rooting out all of those elements, right? So, uh, you know, the, the, the very understanding of substantive, uh, you know, uh, decolonization. At the same time, I think it's important to understand that, and this maybe is just alerting to what I see to be a, a, a sort of danger in some of this recent use of coloniality um, um, as a category um, is that we can't stray too far from the material questions, right? We can't stray too far from the fact that we're still fundamentally talking about a process that is about land, that is about labor, that is about the control of that land and that labor. Um, and so again, we don't want to simply take um, categories like decoloniality or coloniality or colonialism willy-nilly extract them out of a certain context and, and assume that they apply uh, in a kind of universal way, because we're talking about the historical texture of these processes. So as someone who grew up as an immigrant in the United States South, um, you know, the Southerners claim that they were, you know, colonized by the North. I mean, this is something that's like very common. Um, so, you know, grew up with Confederate flags all my life, the South will rise again. Um, and, you know, this, um, and you teach, you know, you teach the boys and reading Black Reconstruction, one of the things was like, there was always upset with the federal government, uh, uh, Black people and Black scholars at the time, and, and everyone else was the betrayal that the federal government did not occupy the South long enough and did not go far enough, you know? because there was an occupation, you know, the federal government came in and then there's all this um, animosity of how the people were, the Southerners were treated when this military was present, right? So, and the statues, like taking down some of the statues was actually a part of, you know, the, the, the end of reconstruction and Jim Crow destroying all the gains that were made by black people and then reinstituting slavery another way and then pulling up those statues to say we won you know in this way right so but it's not during the southern you know the during the civil war that these statues were actually erected but what's so interesting is that you see these processes that are happening with black lives matter and so on and the statue taking down statues and then you see these very decontextualized use of some of these same things in post-socialist, uh, you know, countries. In and it's also very much decontextualized where now socialism is colonization. You know, like it is a form of control because the you know the the socialists took away land right uh, from the rich and like instituted a form, a foreign form, which is socialism, right? And so on. And so like, this would be interesting, uh, interesting, but this is actually why it's so important to, um, like you said, Gio, to put things in perspective of how, how co colonialism and decolonization is, is weaponized by really terrible people <laughs> to, by the rich and the, you know, the, the it's, it's the, 
you know, the, uh, what's the word, like reimposition of capitalism in every possible way, even taking the categories that we had, we thought we had sacred, like decolonization is now being taken by them. So I guess I wanted to ask you about that particularly. Oh, no, of course. And, and again, the fundamental point is that not all occupation, not all aggression, not all conflict is uh, is colonialism, right? Especially, again, what is the essence of colonialism, historically speaking, modern colonialism? Capitalist, racial, right? Plus many other, you know, pieces that come along with that package. Um, but if you talk about context in which not only are those things not present, right, um, but they're actually sort of inverted or backwards, um, of course, you would not be talking about something like, like a colonial relationship. Um, th this is part and parcel of this long process of American settlers trying to make themselves into natives, right, and trying to make themselves into people who were then either held under the colonial domination of England or then held under the colonial domination of, of the North and Northern capital. Um, and, and the answer is not to say, of course, the South is the, not to say the South was this terrible, uh, awful thing, which of course, from the perspective of you know the institution of slavery, it, it was. Um, but that that southern economy was fundamentally bound up with the northern capitalist economy as well, and the global capitalist world system. It was central to that you know to those systems. Um, and, and so uh, you, you're talking about an institution that served global capitalism, um, and you can't simply take that, flip it around, and act as if um, you know it was the victim of global colonial capitalism when it was exactly the the, the you know the opposite. And, and of course you know, the, the task was to finish the Civil War, absolutely obliterate, you know, these institutions. Um, but, um, you know, of course, in, in the process of that, Northern Capital was not innocent, um, and Northern Capital simply wanted to, you know, ensure, um, you know, a cheap and pliable labor force, which is exactly why Jim Crow um, and, and, you know, and, and other white supremacist institutions continued as a form of labor domination in the South, which is precisely what um, Du Bois is um, talking about. So yes, you can't simply take these categories, apply them, act as if you know um, they are you know universally applicable, and especially in a context. And I think this is where I, I definitely you know you know am not the the expert here, um, but in a, in the sense in which you know global colonialism is built on this distinction between East and West, as um, you know um, you know as Hall emphasizes, you know this is not. Um, you know, the, the, maybe the, the borders of the West when it comes to the Mediterranean or the Atlantic Ocean were clear. He says in the East, there were not. There's this struggle to construct the Eastern boundary of the West, right? There's a struggle to, you know, uh, distinguish where the East begins and the West ends, right? Um, and what always struck me, and I would, uh, you know, I was teaching comparative politics and teaching about theories of comparison when um, the war broke out. Um, and what always struck me is just, just this struggle, it's a constant struggle to redraw and redistinguish that line uh, of where the East begins, right? And that line cuts right through and in and across Ukraine, right? Um, and the way in which sort of Ukrainian nationalism, you know, was reactivated, the way in which the distinctions that had been um, developing within Ukraine then were reactivated or redrawn, the lines were redrawn, were very much about contesting this question of where the East begins and where the West ends. Um, and, and again, you know, uh, you can't simply apply the category of colonialism fully outside of its historical context in that way, I don't think. Okay, so yeah, this is a good uh, moment then to uh, bring the conversation to Volodymyr. And so, um, I mean, with that background, obviously like a very detailed and good background of this concept of 
decolonization and um and its use historically and uh, its its relationship to kind of like a real political economy of 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 capitalist development and expansion in the west and through the global south um you know volodymyr uh i'm curious like in the since february 2022 when the full-scale invasion of ukraine um, by russia uh, began you know there's been a lot of discussion both amongst activists and in academia and even by politicians themselves in the west and ukraine and russia and elsewhere about this concept of decolonization so i'm wondering if for our listeners and for the discussion if you could just kind of give a an outline of like how is this concept of decolonization being used in relation to the current conflict um, that's raging in Ukraine um, today? Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, well, let me start from some history of this discussion uh, about the colonialism in relation to Ukraine. So obviously this first starts with the question whether Ukraine was uh, a colony of the Russian Empire. And that's actually, again, the, the that actually should not be obvious because it's that uh, kind of like silence is a question whether a part of Ukraine was a colony within uh, the Habsburg Empire, the Galicia, the most western part of Ukraine, or whether Ukraine was a, a colony uh, in the interbellum Poland between 1918 and uh, 1939. And, uh, Mostly this discussion is about Ukraine within the Russian uh, Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. Uh, this is a, a contested question, uh, uh, even in the context of the Russian Empire, because the problem is that uh, even if uh, taken into account, for example, the history of the discussion that Geo has just uh, uh, talked about, uh, there would be too many differences in, in relation between U Ukraine and Russia. So first of all, I mean, uh, the racial dimension is fully absent. So the Ukrainians within the Russian imperial uh, perspective were seen as the core of the Russian nation. So it's that, that the whole point behind this uh, Putin's narrative. Russians and Ukrainians are supposedly one single nation. Uh, this are uh, completely, I mean, th this could be contested, obviously, but uh, there is a very obvious difference from the narratives of the Western European empires that did not see the African and Asian and other colonies as a part of the English nation, French nation, Spanish nation, and so on and so forth. If Ukrainians were a part of the Russian nation, maybe that's not a question of colonialism, but a question of nationalism. And then also the question of uh, competing nation-building projects, one of which uh, may eventually win. Uh, but win not for some uh, natural predisposal of the population of Ukraine to some very specific uh, national vision, uh, but because of the very complicated and uh, contested political developments. Uh, the uh, other problem is uh, that uh, Ukrainians were also a 
part of the uh, Russian imperial expansion. Uh, so the uh, comparative point uh, could be the role that, for example, Scotland played in the British Empire. So it was like dependent territory without independence. However, they were part of the empire. And um, in case of Ukraine, again, getting back to the uh, lack of the racial uh, distinction, then um, Ukrainians, the, 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 the key distinction is that actually the Ukrainians were not individually discriminated in the Russian Empire, however, their collective identity was denied. Uh, and that's also not a great thing, obviously, from any progressive point of view, but it's also pretty far from how the uh, Western European colonies were treated. And then there is also economic dimension, obviously. Uh, and there have been some interesting Marxist discussion, like 100 years ago, that we're trying to uh, analyze Ukraine as a colony within the Russian Empire, specifically from the economic point of view. The problem is that whether the uh, anything that we could identify as uh, proper economic colonialism in relation to Ukraine within the Russian Empire was actually something of the relation between Russia and Ukraine, or rather the uh, actually uh, a manifestation of the peripheral development of the Russian Empire as a whole and Ukraine as its integral part. So Ukraine was developing a peripheral agrarian economy working for the uh, specifically to export the grain and then export coal, uh, raw resources to the core capitalist nations, but that was actually a part of how the Russian Empire as a whole, as a peripheral empire, was integrating into the capitalist system. Uh, and then it's, uh, and obviously it doesn't say that uh, uh, relations between uh, Russia and uh, the, its Central Asian uh, territories uh, or Siberia, uh, they could be quite different from the relations between Russia and Ukraine. So this is an, uh, this is all the uh, arguments about Ukraine and Russia. It's, it doesn't say that Russia didn't have colonies at all. Ru Russian Empire obviously did have colonies, but it's a question whether Ukraine was a colony within that uh, within that imperial project, or whether Ukraine played a very diff different uh, part uh, there, and. Then, uh, uh, even more, I mean, th 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 that, that historical discussions are important, and actually with the, the reinvigoration in, uh, by Putin, they're becoming even more and more important, and probably they are going to be even more discussed. But uh, even more important were the question, trying to put this colonial perspective on the uh, experience of Ukraine within the Soviet Union. And here it becomes extremely problematic, I would say. And uh, the problem is that it just, it, it becomes a totally opposite viewpoint to the way how the colonialism was uh, analyzed, uh, let's say by, 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 by the people like Fanon, 
or by by most of the uh, international uh, writers on colonialism, because here colonialism becomes something uh, integral to the process of social revolution. So Ukraine becomes a colony in the process where uh, social revolutions were pushing forward emancipatory, egalitarian policies, uh, building a modern industrial nation on the territory of Ukraine, but which was an integral part of the largest superstate, which might, uh, from a certain viewpoint, uh, have uh, have have had some uh, imperial characteristics. So the problem is that Ukraine was obviously not fully independent, although it it did have a lot of uh, formal institutions of an independent state and uh, something that also became important in the recent re- recent context. Ukraine, as a, a quasi independent nation, became a founder of the United Nations on a par. It is uh, Russia and also Belarus was participating there, but not other Soviet republics, which is also very interesting. So uh, there were a, a lot of the of the formal institutional uh, structure of the modern state. There was uh, actually the uh, uh, real process of modernization. And when we try to see this with the perspective of colonialism, it just becomes extremely weird. How we, we how we use it. So when when the uh, people who are pushing now the agenda of decolonization about Ukraine, uh, this is an agenda of rejecting uh, social revolutionary modernization. Just to put it simply like that. So that was either oppressive or not important. And when, when we call it colonial, uh, we, we just look at the exclusively uh, violent and uh, authoritarian practices uh, within that process and completely ignore the modernizing, emancipatory and uh, egalitarian uh, processes that were integral to the Ukrainian experience within the Soviet Union. So uh, this whole discussion it has got uh, a lot of prominence in certain circles uh, since the full-scale invasion in the last year. And uh, I would say there are two uh, um, dimensions of the discussion. One is actually domestic for Ukraine. And within Ukrainian uh, political and public field, uh, decolonization is, uh, is basically derussification. It's uh, erasure of anything connected to Russia, but also to the Soviet Union. And in this, in this way, this is also a continuation of the policies of the decommunization that started earlier, uh, right after the Euromaidan revolution. And uh, we're kind of like criminalizing the Soviet ideology, Soviet symbolism, and uh, removing the uh, Soviet monuments from the public uh, field in Ukraine. But now it gets uh, even more expansionary anti-Russian agenda. So obviously the monuments that are connected to, not not simply to the Russian imperial history, but let's say to Russian classical writers and poets like Pushkin, Lermontov, 
um, uh, renaming of the streets, settlements that, that could be connected to any Russian influence, but also uh, they uh, stopped teaching Russian language literature in the secondary schools, even in those cities where, where the population is overwhelmingly Russian-speaking and where the Russian is actually the first uh, language of the majority of the children. Uh, so they are not learning it uh, uh, at all. Uh, at least now, and it's uh, and uh, this was actually the the uh, project of uh, a certain segment of Ukrainian intelligence that was actually uh, starting to discuss that in the early nineties or maybe even earlier. But with with the full scale invasion, they've got political opportunities to finally to push it forward. And some of the representatives were quite uh, explicitly speaking about special operation of diversification, that we need to seize the opportunity. There won't be other chance for that. And so we need to use the war to transform the country in our image and likeness. Uh, there is a, an international dimension for that. And on the international scene, it's pushed forward by uh, the primarily by the academics, uh, intellectuals, artists. Uh, and in on the international scene, it's it, it kind of like tries to fit into this more like expansionary understanding of the decolonization that uh, the GEO was also just uh, talking about about epistemological decolonization, about the symbolic decolonization, cultural decolonization, but obviously not about economic, and uh, which is, uh, again, which is not supposed to be obvious, especially under the conditions of the state that is fi fighting for its existence, and which is, uh, like, as we know from the historical sociology, the states which are fighting the war are becoming stronger states so because they need to mobilize resources, they need to increase taxes, they need to concentrate all, all, all the power in order to, to win the war. The, the uh, main lines of the Ukrainian economic policies are mainly exactly the opposite, like lowering taxes, uh, privatization, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the symbolic dimension of this decolonization fits quite well to um, uh, what we can discuss is the rise of the identity politics and where the uh, intellectuals that uh, who kind of like were has, have been integrating into the western academia uh, they've been also using the, the same language that are becoming dominant uh, there and within that specific uh, intellectual context, uh, uh, pushing forward that uh, Ukrainians are now uh, have require the same attention, or even maybe even more attention, or and the same um, affirmative and, and the symbolic. Uh, support as the gender minorities, as racial minorities. And so in this way, Ukrainian ethno-national identity becomes uh, like one of the many, many, many other identities that are uh, calling for their recognition and for their 
for their better position in the, within the uh, public, intellectual, academic, and political field. And with, with many different uh, complications, which this uh, kind of way of politics and discourse um, usually includes. So one of the topics of Volodymyr that you had um, mentioned, and this was like following off of uh, something that Gio was saying, but this is also um, something that you had mentioned in uh, an article that you wrote um, in the New Left Review, uh, Ukrainian Voices uh, in December. Um, and it's about this disconnect between the way in which like this concept of decolonization is used to become just a, a form of identity politics versus its historical use as being intimately linked to socialism, economic emancipation, and like a developmentalist state in the 20th century. Of course, we know that one of the main uh, subjects of ire for the for the Rus both the Russian state um, and ironically enough for you know Ukrainian nationalists are the Leninist nationalities policies of the early Soviet state um, and some of these early moves to sort of connect um, an idea of national development to some kind of universalist um, economic uh, project. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, if you could maybe just explain a little bit more or touch on the, the way in which the decolonization rhetoric in the Ukrainian context today and in the discussions about what's happening in Ukraine also either reinforce or are animated by a kind of like e economic view of the world that is um, not compatible with an egalitarian economic vision um, that is in maybe in opposition to or is hostile to a, a socialist economic uh, vision of development in the, the post-communist space? Well, I, I think that the, my answer to this question would be much shorter than my earlier uh, response. Uh, the decolonization in the context of Ukraine right now is a part of the ideology of professional middle class. And uh, their aspiration is to join the uh, global elite. <clears throat> uh, they use the uh, Ukrainian ethno-national identity politics precisely to win recognition within the uh, global elite. And uh, this elitarian a project is by definition uh, in opposition to the um, social revolutionary egalitarian agenda. And uh, specifically in the context of Ukraine, uh, this is, uh, becomes also explicitly anti-communist uh, agenda, where the social revolution um, becomes a kind of like colonialist project, but the uh, eradication of the achievements of the, that revolution becomes kind of a quasi-emancipation. And I, I believe that's very uh, perverted view of the world. However, it um, makes perfect sense for very specific uh, class 
that uh, legitimates uh, his uh, uh, economic interests. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's absolutely true. And I think on a economic level, the same thing is repeated on, on, on a kind of symbolic identitarian level, which is very troubling. And again, fully incompatible with our understanding of, of colonialism and decolonization, and namely the fact that in attempting to sort of redraw this boundary of East and West, there's this explicit embrace of whiteness, Europeanness, of being part of the West. There's a claim made to that, right? Um, and so it's the most bizarre thing to be on the one hand claiming Europeanness, claiming uh, you know uh, to be a, an essential part of the West, and also claiming to be colonized, right? <laughs> you know, so you're 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 claiming inclusion, and of course this is this is an economic inclusion as well. Right to be included within the global capitalist world system that colonialism helped inaugurate, right, and that was fundamentally built and premised upon a, a global white supremacy. You see the inverse of this, of course, in the ongoing Orientalism toward Russia, toward Putin, toward all you know all the symbolic trappings of Orientalism being openly deployed, um, and and you know and it is I think you know as Lordmir has emphasized part of this detaching of colonialism. Um, or, or sort of disaggregation of what colonialism should mean into smaller pieces that are then available for this kind of contemporary identity um, politics approach, right? Which we see happening more generally, right? When we see um, chairs and provosts and deans of decolonization being hired at universities, you know, we have a tendon, you know, something happening, which is the watering down, the emptying of decolonization of its content to the point where, you know, of course, in, in this context as well, the emphasis placed by Eve Tuck and Wang, Wang Yang in their article, decolonization is not a metaphor, um, seems just as relevant, right? Decolonization is not simply a metaphor you can lift away from the reclamation of land by historically dispossessed people, um, you know, in the European colonial encounter, you can't simply lift it out of that context, apply it somewhere else and expect that mere domination, again, this is, this is Fon's language, right? Mere domination is not colonization. Mere, domina mere domination is not dehumanization. Um, the, the, the construction of entire categories of people um, unfit to, you know, to have a claim to, um, you, know, uh, you know, modernity and equality. Uh, and, and much less in this case where you've got people, again, trying to claim both of those things at once, right? Trying to claim whiteness and claim to be oppressed. Um, there are plenty of people uh, doing both of those things in the world right now. Um, and it's part of, I think, a broader trend of, on the one hand, the right appropriating the language and the tools of the left, um, which has been going on for, you know, uh, you know, it goes on permanently, um, but what's been, what has been very sharpened since the sort of like Arab Spring, mass global revolts, where right-wing movements have been trying to infiltrate themselves into that. Um, but, um, you know, especially in this moment where you've got both the resurgent white supremacy and the permanent sort of victim narrative that that white supremacy is built on, I think we see this happening more broadly. Yeah, I think, um... The entire post-socialist like reconstruction of the nation states everywhere has been exactly like this victimhood, right? Everyone is trying to claim the most victim um, to then somehow appeal to being more European and being included in European Union because they have suffered so much, right? Um, and so like every country is constantly in competition um, trying to you know, not only liberalize their economies to attract the foreign investment, but at the same time write this sad story of how they were beaten by, you know, usually 
Russia. Um, uh, it used to also be much more, also some Muslims, you know, but that's sort of out of style more or less comparatively now. So it's like, you know, the, how they were oppressed during the Soviet Union. And then of course, Russian empire being sort of put together as the same thing and no differentiation. Um, so, this uh, this is actually, I think, what's sort of new about this, right? I think what Gio is saying, because I don't know when, besides like literally fascists who have claimed victimhood and then did like, you know, Nazis and, and Italians and Germans are what is coming to my mind, a similar sort of white supremacist. Um, we are the superior race and yet we're the victims. And so now we're going to take our power back kind of thing. Uh, uh, but it seems like a very kind of modern twist, um, something different than we have seen before. So I think this is also what has confused a lot of the, I would say the global left uh, in taking positions, right? I think that's been a real huge problem. Not just the left, I actually think the right is also, I was actually listening to one of our friends, David Broder about how the right wing was getting confused. I was like, oh, it's not just the left. Uh, everyone's trying to figure out how to position themselves to to this phenomena of Ukraine, you know? Um, and so that's like another thing, but it was, I really like Volodya wrote um, in Ukrainian Voices is like what you just said, Gio, is like the two parts about Fanon. It's like, first you take the power, right? You take like the administrative power, you take the political power, but then the second part is the most important, it's the social revolution. And that's really um, what was new in the discussion that has been happening around supporting or, or supporting, you know, quote unquote, what there's a specific way of supporting that uh, had the there's a a, a mine minority of, of leftists in Ukraine that have been vociferous have been asking right for a certain kind of support, um, a certain kind not just support but a certain kind of framework to view uh, Ukraine in. Um, but I think what's really uh, interesting that Volodya has brought in is this, is that this other fragment that's been missing in a lot of the analysis is that, is there a resistance to this, right? Is there a resistance to whiteness? Is there a resistance to capitalism? You know, is there a resistance uh, to just being the, the, you know, economic pawn of, you know, EU afterwards or whatever, or just like, I mean, it's like the most, obvious Zelensky goes around telling everyone to invest, begging like military contractors to big business to please come and do whatever the hell you want, you know, just come to, to Ukraine, rebuild, you know, quote unquote, rebuild. And so it's not even in any way hidden. It's, it's, it's more than obvious. It's more than, uh, you know, it's always like in your face. So you can't say you didn't know, because you know. <laughs> and with this war economy of being this sort of similar to World War One, very uh, um, sort of you know, neoliberal, libertarian, like free market-based kind of uh, approach that's been also kind of different than other war times or economies that usually are running. So in this light, let's say, um, what, is is uh, sort of like what would be like the framework to help people analyze? You know, what would be some of the hints, like things to help? Um, what I think most 
people who listen to the podcast. Some are leftists, some are just interested in Georgia, you know, some are historians, some are academics. So some of them might not care as much about this question. But for like the left who's been very confused, you know, I've also been uh, confused, not about my politics, but about how to explain things to other people. Um, I guess, what would you both offer to that? Um, I can say, I think what's very difficult um, is that, I mean, of course, we can offer things like a caution about the language of colonialism. We can offer, um, you know, a, a, an attempt to be more precise about our understanding of what substantively that would mean. Um, and, you know, a, a caution against accepting, uh, you know, roughly pro-European and pro-capitalist tendencies within the sort of umbrella of, uh, you know, of what should be a more substantive idea of decolonization, sure. Um, What's difficult is that, you know, um, you know, and here, you know, the again, the first stage of finance decolonization is not simply about taking power, right? It's also about constructing a national identity, right? And about activating that national identity. Uh, and what's very troubling, I think, and, you know, I'd be curious to hear, you know, if, if this is a correct interpretation. Um, what's very troubling is that, particularly since 2014, we've seen that, right? We've seen that process of activating a national identity. We've seen that process of redrawing boundaries, which used to be very complicated, right? In the sense of like, you know, many Russian speaking, you know, areas in the East in particular, um, you know, uh, the presence of, you know, uh, Russian elements and Russian culture, but we've seen the sort of gradual hardening, I guess, of, uh, you know, of Ukrainian national identity um, in a way that becomes very real, right? It's not enough to simply say these things are imaginary, right? Because the consequences are powerful, the consequences are significant. And in an important ways, it's, it's very difficult to roll back that national identity once it's become hardened, right? And so part of what happens in wars in general, of course, um, uh, is that, you know, is that identities harden, is that resentments develop. And, and you know, one of the difficulties is that, you know, some of the analytic pieces that we may offer might have been rendered kind of obsolete by the march of, uh, you know, of events, right? Like we could point to all of the complexities of pre-2014 Ukrainian national identity, um, and, and yet by the sort of very force and the brunt of, of the violence, um, we've seen a lot of that, uh, you know, kind of wiped away and a very new terrain to be grappled with, right? A terrain of a, a new kind of national identity that's very strong, the boundaries very hard, clearly delineated, increasingly exclusionary. Um, and that seems to be the new terrain that the left needs to then navigate, right? Which, you know, for me, it's not, you know, so much as offering answers, it's just uh, understanding that this is very difficult um, terrain uh, indeed. And it takes place in the context of many um, leftist frameworks globally having become very scrambled in the past decade, right? Whether it's questions of sort of Latin American revolutionaries or whether it's questions that, you know, sort of in particularly around, in and around the, the Syrian civil war, um, the fact that many of the existing frameworks that we had proved, um, you know, incapable of really providing the easy answers that we're looking for when it comes to the presence of these identities, the presence of non progressive nationalisms, the presence of, you know, and the tensions between, uh, in this case, two non-progressive forces, right? Like, and this is, you know, a very difficult um, situation for the left to navigate. Um, let me continue to, to, to respond to uh, uh, Sopo's question. Uh, the, uh, I, I probably it might, might so, uh, sound uh, very old school and banal, but uh, I think contemporary left cannot do anything without uh, 
getting back seriously to the class analysis, to the bringing back the concepts of modernity, of progress, um, and social revolution, and because it, it just helped to 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 see what, what is actually progressing and what is not. Otherwise, we, we might get into the trap uh, where the uh, contemporary Ukrainian nationalist middle class people are speaking about decolonization, which gets sometimes very clearly reactionary overtones. So uh, one, one of the main differences is how today nationalism works is that it's actually, actually it typically lacks its uh, modern, modernization um, element, which was pretty much uh, the most important uh, element perhaps for the 19th century nationalism and also with uh, how the Soviet nation-building policies were, were proceeded. So uh, what happens now is kind of like the nationalism under demodernization conditions, not under the modernization conditions. Uh, in, in the case of Ukraine, that actually gives a lot of nuances with how we understand uh, the uh, Soviet experience and also the later post-Soviet. So, for example, the, this whole uh, discussion about the Ukrainian uh, ethno-linguistic regional diversity between Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Let's recall how how it was uh, actually how it emerged. It emerged in the process of the Soviet modernization. So the Russian language uh, for the period of industrialization of building the post-war. Uh, Ukrainian nation was actually the language of social advancement. It was a language of promotion. It was the language where the people who were coming from the Ukrainian-speaking peasant families were coming to the urban environment, were getting higher education, were getting intellectual jobs, uh, were getting status, and they were acquiring the uh, Russian language because that was the language of the urban life. It was the language of the higher education. It was the language of the state as well. It was the language also of the peers of everything that they they communicated. And of course, it's, we should not take it uh, unproblematically. Uh, but nonetheless, th this was the element. The, 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 this was the appeal behind that. That was not exactly the coercion. That was the power of attraction, first of all. And th that was the problem of the why when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, reverse Ukrainianization was not actually happening until at least 2014. So until at least 2014, the uh, uh, Russian-speaking uh, families were very rarely switching to Ukrainian language because that was not anymore the language uh, of social advancement. And that, that was a, a, a part of the problem with, this, uh, with the general uh, direction of the post-Soviet transformation, rather demodernizing than modernizing. And, uh, and now uh, some people are switching to the Ukrainian language uh, in a kind of like in a reaction to what Russia is doing. But uh, the question is, is, is it actually enough, uh, this uh, purely negative reaction? I'm not going to use the language of aggressor. And is it going to stay for a long time? That, again, the, a comparison with the Soviet Union would be very informative. Uh, Germans, 
were doing the war of extermination uh, during the Second World War uh, on, on the Eastern Front. The war on the Eastern Front and the Western Front were quite different wars. So in Ukraine, they were burning the villages with the whole population of there. They were starving the people. They were killing en masse. So basically, the, the whole plan was about extermination and enslavement for, for Russians, Ukrainians, for Belarusians, for the Eastern Slavic population that would uh, that they were supposed to capture in case they, they would win the war. And obviously, the uh, attitudes towards Germans uh, were very harsh in the post-war period. It was the confusion between Germans and fascists and uh, the ethnic Germans within the Soviet Union also experienced kind of like a discrimination. Uh, and then, you know, the, then the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and they, they moved to Germany and they actually recalling that uh, they actually experienced some harsh time uh, because of the reaction to the... Uh, the to 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 toward the Nazi Germany the, the, to the Soviet Union, but again, uh, the, the, then the difference because uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing, and Germany or like broader the West were now seen as the beacon of progress, as the kind of like a beacon which shows the way of development for the post-Soviet nations. And uh, this, despite the very hardened feelings towards uh, uh, Germans that followed the Second World War, they 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 they, they are hardly uh, present uh, anymore. And that's uh, that, that, that is seen with, uh, with with this irony that Ukrainians are now fighting on German tanks, on German armor against uh, Russians. Uh, together with whom they were fighting against Germans in the Second World War. So all this uh, uh, kind of like uh, hardened uh, boundaries uh, that are quite typical outcome of the wars, they are also they should not be essentialized, and they they they, they can they can be kind of like softened, they can be even reversed, as the Ukrainian. Uh, uh, case shows just just think about how the, the memory of the Second World War is being changed uh, by by the Russian invasion uh, right now. So uh, it 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 won't be surprising that the uh, boundaries may change drastically again in a few decades with a different social dynamics, and it would depend a lot whether the post-war Ukraine might show any. Uh, advancement, any development, any, any any social progress, and if it's gonna be a, a kind of like peripheralizing economy where only a small minority would join the global elite, but where the broad majority would would remain uh, basically poor and uh, experiencing high inequality, then. Uh, it doesn't seem that the uh, the project of uh, like contemporary Ukrainian middle class uh, nationalists might 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 have a big success you know, under such social conditions. 
I love that. Like, I think that was really powerful intervention on that to really visualize it. Um, I want to go back to like um, this idea of like how things have changed, as as Willa just said, and you also said the last ten years the leftist frameworks haven't been working, right? The, and because things are moving very quickly, it seems, um, and we are not quite adapting. Um, and what's what's been interesting for me is that, you know, I come from um, very sectarian, annoying, you know, political lineage from the beginning when I became a Marxist. I was so trained by very dogmatic people who were like, you know, every small thing was like, that's not real socialism. That's not real socialism. It's like very particular, their entire identity was trying to destroy everything that ever existed as real socialism, saying it's not real socialism. So um, I'm, of course, rehabilitated, uh, but it's, you know, I grew up in this kind of way, and that's actually most of, I would say, the left uh, um, and that was allowed to really be open in the U.S., you know, was that kind of left, um, of course, because of also because of Red Scare and so on and so on. And so what's been interesting is seeing, you know, Venezuela, which I have often defended, and the way I even met Gio was his incredible book, We Created Chavez, that actually changed my mind too, because I had... At first, I was also, you know, thought Venezuela under Chavez was like a dictatorship and that's not like a real attempt at socialism. And uh, why do we have to you know, believe in big guys, big bosses or whatever, and so on and so on. And so, he, you know, his book, his breakdown really showed me, wow, this is actually very complex and incredible process that's happening. Um, and I've been trained by very sectarian and stupid people. Um, but in this way, I've also seen how the same kind of people as well, which have now uh, kind of gotten even more popular because they have jumped on this Ukraine you know, bandwagon, Ukraine solidarity. And I've realized now there's like a British version. I'm so glad I never got to deal with British, the, the same kind of people in, in England because they're even worse than the US version. Um, but also they're doing the same thing there. Um, and what was interesting, these same people who thought Chavez was not socialist enough and just had this like impossible uh, framework uh, with Venezuela. And even uh, after, you know, even Maduro, despite you know, many criticisms of Maduro, still like when the US has been continuously trying to overthrow Venezuelan governments, and destroy them economically um, and socially in every possible way. They have tried, they've stolen wealth, you know, so on, frozen bank accounts, and have uh, tried to drown Maduro. Um, not a word for most of the left there, you know, about clearly US imperialism. Yet they're like, oh, like completely with Ukraine, even though Zelensky's not even pretending to be a socialist. <laughs> he doesn't even have the word that he hates socialism. He's a capitalist through and through with, you know, destroying labor rights and, you know, telling, you know, big, the worst corporations have ever existed to come to Ukraine, right? So 
what's happening there? Like, what is the, this is like, that's been like driving me crazy. It's like, and I would say the first, like with Gio, because you are someone who has been defending Venezuela and trying to bring in like knowledge about Venezuela. And for, since I've known you for, for over a decade, you know, um, what is it like since you've been such a lone voice often, uh, trying to bring nuance to these questions that have been so dismissed. And I have been ridiculed by so many leftists for even defending Venezuela. So maybe start with- No, I mean, I think it's a good question. And I think, I mean, I think this happens within Venezuela too, right? The, you know, the ways in which certain voices on the so-called left would, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, as you put it, uh, you know, hold an impossible um, bar, an impossibly high bar, um, to even accept the Venezuelan process as radical or as progressive or revolutionary, but at the same time would hold hands with the far right in the streets, right? Like that was happening within Venezuela, right? Um, and I think, you know, there are different reasons for that, different, um, you know, you know, different, <laughs> I would say wrong ideas that lead you to this kind of position. I think it led me to be very sort of uh, skeptical of, um, the category of authoritarianism, which seems to be so easy to deploy and tells us very little in the sense, you know, in the sense that, for example, we want the people to have power and authority, right? Like we want revolutionary struggles to be able to defeat their enemies and be victorious in those struggles, right? It's far more to do with the content than, than the sort of so-called authority Right. Um, and, and, you know, as you noted, I think this is always based on a misconception that power was being put into the hands of one person when, of course, that was not at all what was happening um, in in Venezuela. Um, so you've got these tendencies on the left to, on one hand, judge revolutionary processes, you know, with a degree of harshness while um, becoming liberals um, toward the right. Right. You know, in other words, very quickly, if something happens, if we start to win actual battles against the right, there's a rush to defend the individual rights of our enemies. Right. There's a rush to say, oh, no, but um, the government is oppressing such and such um, people. But it's, you know, you know, as you put it, I think built on, on, on incredibly weak foundations right these things are complicated right i and when i hinted toward latin america earlier like i have very complicated views on the ways in which some governments claim to be on the left in latin america that actually have pacted with the right you know um that have um you know and, and you know that have sold out many of their constituents um and so i think there needs to be this kind of judgment but we also need to judge these in you know in and within a part of a process um and we need to understand that sort of revolution and socialism is an incredibly complicated and difficult transition right i think what parts of the left underestimate is the seriousness of transition which requires organization which requires a certain kind of power power that of course should be you know uh, anchored in grassroots revolutionary organization that should be distributed in a certain kind of way not simply the power of the state um but uh, but a power nonetheless that needs to be coalesced that needs to be deployed and that needs to be used to to, to win real um victories uh let me add to here that uh i think it, it it's not so much uh, the sectarian part of the uh, fringe left that uh, uh, should be of the main issue now, uh, but more like a center-left uh, segment, 
uh, I mean, more, more like centrist, uh, that uh, takes uh, 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 perhaps absolutely uncritical uh, position in in in, in, the, in this war, which goes goes on right now. And the reason is also, I, I believe it, it it has to do primarily with the change of the class composition of the supporters of the contemporary center-left. Or the, we could also say the, like more reformist wings of what is typically called like so-called radical left uh, within the European left parties. And uh, Thomas Piketty was uh, given this concept of uh, the Brahmin left, it's, uh, the left with high education credentials, basically an intellectual elite, which is now predominantly votes to the left. And uh, the left parties uh, uh, are kind of like becoming more and more the parties of the middle class intellectuals. While the working class uh, tends to vote, at least in the Western uh, democracies, tends to vote for the, to, to, to the populist right. And if you see, see the contemporary center-left uh, as the uh, parties of the middle-class intellectuals, it's uh, quite understandable why they do not understand the um, movements like in Venezuela, and why, on the other hand, they are super apologetic about uh, what may happen in a quite anti-left country like Ukraine, because it's just, they don't really care about the uh, uh, plebeian masses. This is simply not their class. In this uh, article that you wrote, Volodymyr, I think one of the most interesting uh, Ukrainian voices, um, one of the most interesting parts for me was the way that you try to like engage with this question of, you know, one important step politically is to is is to not just reify a Ukrainian identity as a voice within a kind of like ecosystem of Western identity politics, but to actually try and locate what universal lessons and what universal political lessons and observations um, can actually the position of being, say, from Ukraine, in Ukraine, within the Ukrainian political space, and can that offer a sort of like universalist project of emancipation, political struggle, and most importantly, internationalism. Um, and one of the, I think, things that you locate, and of course you can add to this, one of the things that you located was this idea of the post-Soviet world, Ukraine especially, having a crisis of representation, um, and that this deep crisis of representation, um, which facilitates this obsession and use of the decolonial framework as a kind of like identity-based um, elite um, or middle-class pro-West kind of identity uh, framework um, because in the post-Soviet context, there are no governments, 
that have been able to come to power through, say, these color revolutions or through other moments that have been able to actually like represent um, nations, represent people, represent even class interest per se in a kind of coherent way. Um, and in your and in your article, you talk about how you know it's possible that the post-Soviet world may be an image of the future for the Western world. Um, and so one thing I wanted to, and then this, I want to relate this to, I want to say this to something that Geo will have some, uh, you know, ideas about, but one of the things I was thinking about as I was rereading your article, uh, Volodymyr, was how in the United States, um, I, there has been these representation crises among the left and among struggles and among movements that we have seen, I think Sopo, uh, Gio and I have seen with our own two eyes. And I'm thinking about, for example, participating in anti-police movements in Oakland for many years um, and seeing this huge tension between say, the, the people who are from neighborhoods who are angry about police violence and then the attempts at say, the church, NGOs, and the middle class sort of activists to try to represent their interests and sort of on the ground having this representation crisis that you're actually almost outlining very beautifully in the context of Ukraine. And this is like one place that I thought there was like an overlap and a kind of interesting engagement between say the experience of anti-police struggles, abolitionist struggles in the United States and the ways in which you're like framing this representation crisis in Ukraine. Um, and so I kind of wanted to throw that idea out there and open the floor and start maybe with Volodymyr, um, if you guys have any thoughts on that. Uh, well, thank you, Yeah, uh, That's a great comparison uh, with the uh, American um, yeah, protests. And uh, that's exactly what, what I had in mind, that we must see in the actually quite um, um, contentious uh, politics in Ukraine, which the, the country which had three revolutions in in the life of just one generation, and just think about when 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 was the last revolution in the United States or in any uh, in in any Western country? Like perhaps the last one was in Portugal in nineteen seventy nineteen seventies. Uh, so. But the problem is that those revolutions are not bringing uh, the uh, social revolutionary changes. Despite the people actually, they understand them as revolutions. It's not simply some protest campaign or it's actually quite, quite many on the left call them coups. Uh, the, the people who participate in those uh, in those events, they, they do expect that their lives are supposed to change, but they are not changing. So in, in this way, the revolutionary events even intensify the very crisis of representation that they were a reaction to in the first place. Uh, and uh, analyzing them, analyzing why exactly it happens, uh, how the, um, for example, the vagueness of claims uh, the very amorphousness of the coalitions, uh, very weak and dispersed leadership in, in the in the contemporary movements contributes to the uh, the sad fact that uh, after even after massive radical uh, campaigns, uh, there is so little of change. Like, 
think about the what was the exact change after the Occupy Wall Street, or even after the the Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter. So uh, after the it, it, the problem is that even when when the left comes to power, like in uh, Syriza increase, it surrenders. So there's some stupidity problem with, with contemporary progressive movements, with the contemporary political parties. Uh, even we can organize mass, mass revolts, or at least we can join mass revolts, and, and they, they're happening with escalating speed, which is also a manifestation of the intensifying crisis. Sometimes we are allowed even to enter power, which is important to change anything. And, and also, yeah, th- 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 think about the Ukrainian far right, which is indeed like, like a, a small movement, but which had an, a disproportionate impact on, on how the post-Romadan Ukrainian politics developed. So th- this is actually a, a case of how to change the world without taking power. That was the that's 20 years old discussion on, on the left from the anarchist uh, perspective. But uh, yeah, that's uh, but th- 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 that's a huge puzzle. So th- and here, yeah, we, we need to learn from the countries like Ukraine that got into the deepest problems that most of the countries in the world would think about. That Ukraine was thinking about itself as uh, almost. Uh, like in, in 1990, 1991, when there was this discussion about the Ukrainian independence, what are we going to do after, after the Soviet Union? And there was serious claims that Ukraine is supposed to become the second France in Europe, that Ukraine would be capable to uh, build on its uh, powerful industrial capacity and to, to become an advanced uh, a, a very advanced nation very soon in 10 years and and, and now it's, it's it's literally perhaps the northernmost country of the global south Just thinking about the huge decline of the gdp and all all the consequences that uh, the the war has already done to the country and which is uh, and all the consequences that are going to follow the war however it's going to end so this is a, a, a huge decline in everything. And uh, if you're living in the in the in 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 in, in the in the time of, of the escalating and of ever more encompassing crisis, like Adam Tools is speaking about poly crisis. Crises that are happening in different fields in different spheres with that inter- are interconnected and amplifying each other, and that in this way they produce some new reality. Uh, so perhaps we indeed uh, can learn a lot from the country which experienced this crisis in the deepest and sharpest form. And it's uh, the, the story about the uh, Maidan revolutions and how they may actually. Uh, teach us something about what what's happening in the uh, in the global politics. How the uh, mass revolts are not uh, bringing those changes that the participants of the revolts were aspiring for. It's just one one of the examples, but we, we could think about many many others. 
Oh, I think and it's very interesting. I think the Rolinger brought up the how to change the world without taking power, changing the world without taking power. The John Holloway kind of book that came out was very important for me many years ago, decades ago, even. Um, but uh, you know, but but it's interesting, right? Because there's a great deal of this in the Latin American, you know, literature and movements, in particular the. Um, John Holloway, of course, began with this sort of negative dialectics of, you know, like withdrawal, negativity, absence. Um, you know, this you can see in theories of uh, what's referred to as as destituent power, right, versus constituent, um, or Zibetchi's theories of like dispersing power um, rather than accumulating it. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting to see it framed in the, this kind of negativity. The phrase, the very famous phrase coming out of Argentina was que se vayan todos, right? Which is basically like, let's get rid of all these political leaders, one after the other, one after the other. It was very inspiring, right? Um, but part of, I think, what Vladimir is pointing to is the ways in which, if nothing changes, you're, you're sort of flexing the power of movements and the power of the grassroots in a negative sense. But if you're still not capable of changing anything, there will be a kind of exhaustion. And you see that even in Venezuela. Um, you see... Um, even somewhere where the left has taken power and struggled to transform power and transform society, um, the the phrase that's often used, you know, of, of, you know, for what began, a few, uh, you know, a few years ago, maybe even ten years ago now, was disgusting. In other words, uh, this sort of like exhaustion, right? And I was always arguing that part of that exhaustion was, and part of that disgusting was the fact that, you know, the that the that if people don't don't understand or be fundamentally different from what it stands against, then you've got a, a similar problem of representation, right? Um, if people are not seeing the change every day, or if people are getting used to the things that have improved, but they're not understanding why they should not simply just vote for the right and give the right a chance to govern, um, then you you will find yourself in a crisis, which I think has, you know, has happened in many ways. And that was always an argument against pragmatism. It was an ar argument for uh, more radical change for you know a direct you know transitions toward communism on the grassroots level um, as a way of pointing to that and being able to say this is what we stand for right this is what is is crucial in terms of the actual social change that we're um, pointing toward um, in a sense I think what you know you, what you're seeing in Ukraine is you know it's it's an oft commented and oft noted tendency across the globe right this sort of you know crisis of representation when it comes to political parties it's part of uh, what the far right feeds on in in Europe, in in the U.S. in particular, this destabilization, disintegration of traditional structures that 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 um, you know give us our understanding of the world, unions, uh, left wing political parties, um, and this momentary appeal to outrage. Right when you describe it that way, when you understand it that way, it's very easy to see the ways in which the kind of liberal progressive left can echo and, and be the kind of mirror image of many of these, right? The mobilization of outrage as a politics, as opposed to the way in which that outrage can become something more substantive. Um, so I think it stands as a kind of caution, right? It also stands maybe as a kind of, uh, not a guide, but a, a suggestion of what the left can do. Because the, you know, the most powerful moments in Latin America or in Venezuela were when these explosive moments of rebellion, resistance, negativity um, were then built into longer processes of, of reconstituting a kind of power. What did that look like? It looked like mass mobilizations to throw people out of government, but then also to uh, you know, push towards say new constituent assemblies um, new radical uh, understandings of alternatives. Of course, a lot of this was built on the pre-existence and the, and the sort of persistence of 
um, of leftist traditions, but also indigenous traditions, also other ways and other understandings of how to govern the world, um, substantive understandings of decolonization that were, I think, a lot more unalloyed in the sense of being, uh, you know, like anti-imperialism in Latin America has always been pretty clearly bound to progressive radical transformation, right? Um, and, you know, I think it's, you know, again, it's a complicated moment and it can be even more complicated in um, places or locations where this global sort of geopolitical contest uh, is again scrambling those coordinates, trying to and, and very trying very consciously to um, substitute uh, sort of more radical understandings of what change should look like with um, you know with these appeals to outrage or these appeals to um, individual rights, say at the expense of collective uh, rights and transformations. Because now what is considered left is so anything and especially because the right wing in the u.s particularly has made everything into the left wing the democratic party is left you know anything can be left now um that they don't like call everything marxism you know cultural marxism to then marxism um and so it's definitely like the idea of you know the class composition and also just centrality of class has been, uh, first of all, theoretically continuously been um, pushed to not be a central, like class shouldn't be central because of sort of new wave, you know, like feminism and other things that have sort of come in uh, is made this idea that class shouldn't be central. So I think there's already been this, I think a mistaken um, push um, and then there's also another, despite the fact that it's kind of liberal, it's still very much dominant, is like all oppression is equal, right? Mm -hmm. um, that infiltrates things and sort of these categories just like collapse that, and it really is like suited for rich people. It's like, oh, I'm a woman, but I'm rich. And so, but you know, but I'm still oppressed or whatever. Um, and because of these, pushbacks against class centrality and against also because of severe deindustrialization, especially in post-Soviet world, because of the collapse of socialism. And and frankly, men just dying off, like no one really talks about this, but like recent study of like Russia and like just looked at Russia and in Hungary, there's like seven million men died in the 90s, you know. And so just incredible changes rise of also women and care work right now i'm in italy where all the georgian care workers are um and it was funny because like going to italy's it's like you know while in the u.s it's like oh italy this amazing like food or whatever and for georgian women it's like going to hell like it's like going to a torture chamber it's, how they think of Italy, it's a scary word, you know? Um, and so this, all these things have changed and doesn't sort of this language of decolonization then, like can it be rescued from this collapse that's happened? Like, does it feed into uh, making class less important because it can mean anything to decolonize, right? Uh, so how would we, Besides, you know, caution that these things are 
problematic and so on and should be careful of what we discuss. Like, do you think the language of decolonization can be reclaimed because it so far has been um, very much become mainstream, but in a very particular understanding of it, very uh, you know, collapsed categories kind of understanding of it, decontextualized. Um, what is the, is it worth it? Is it worth fighting for this concept is what I'm asking, I think. Because the because the category of decolonization, at least this part of the world, um, is very much filled now by a much more liberal word that has become a way to bludgeon socialism to death. I think, I mean, contextually, things may be very complicated. Uh, I think, however, I, I think it's important to understand that analytically, you know, my view is that there's a great deal of decolonization still left to be done in the world, right? I mean, and um, that, you know, it, as an analytic for grasping, particularly European and Euro-American sort of imperial colonial domination of the globe as a core element of the global capitalist world system, I think it's an essential framework. Um, I, I think that what happens is I think that uh, in many senses, and depending on the, the um, you know, political dynamics and economic context, I, I think anything can be um, can be emptied of its context. I think the United States is a perfect example of a place where the language of class persists, but in a hyper-individualized way, right? The idea of being, uh, you know, pulling yourself up from the bootstraps, from your bootstraps is a classically American way of maintaining and retaining economic class while radically individualizing it, right? Um, and I think it's the product of, you know, US history is the product of a certain um, sort of Protestantism and capitalism. And, and I'm sure that, that what's emerging, particularly in the former Soviet, you know, uh, Eastern Bloc is, is a sort of radically faster version of these sort of ideological, um, you know, mutations uh, that, that make these languages very difficult. But you're right in the sense that like, um, what needs to be done. And, and again, this is, I think, a broader um, task that, that I see in, in a lot of work in Latin America and elsewhere is that there needs to be an emphasis on the materiality of decolonization, right? Um, you know, the, if you look at something like the Red Nations, Red Deal, that's a good, great example of, uh, you know, a sort of little manifesto that's emphasizing the fact that decolonization is crucial, but it remains a material task, fundamentally about the land. It remains also an internationalist task, um, which is not simply about, um, you know, uh, bludgeoning individuals as being settlers or colonizers, but inviting everyone into a collective project that's environmental, um, that is, you know, uh, socialist, um, that involves collective participation and deliberation um, on a communal level. Um, and, and I think these are the kind of structures that we're, you know, talking about in, in a lot of parts of the world, um, and particularly in, in the U.S. So for me, I think the category is, is essential because it's not simply a category, it's a description of the, of the last 500 years or more of history on a global level. Um, the question is, what kind of perversions will neoliberal capitalism, U.S. imperialism, and, and you know, other um, you know, um, elements, uh, you know, what kind of mutations, distortions will they impose onto these categories in an attempt to empty them of, their, of that content? Um, and, and, and so that is something I think we need to be always uh, on alert about. Whether or not it is a, you know, relevant category at all for the Ukrainian struggle, I think is part of the question, right? And, but part of that is to say, you know, uh, we need to be a lot clearer about what these words mean, and they don't simply mean anything we want them to mean. 
Uh, let me add here that uh, the problems with the concepts like decolonization, that actually this, this is a negative concept. And uh, if it's a negative concept, it's uh, always insufficient to offer some positive uh, alternative. And so the historically decolonization, at least in, uh, in the post-war uh, period, it, was connected, if not necessarily with the social revolution, but with some developmentalism, the things that we actually mentioned earlier in the in the discussion. So there was some positive alternative, which was supposed to happen after the nation is decolonized. And so the problem now is that actually we lack positive alternative. It's a, it's a positive supplement to decolonization. And what we need to concentrate on is on developing the positive uh, developmental alternative that would include the majorities of the societies, that would offer them the expansion of their lives, the progress for them. And uh, we need, after the state socialism collapsed, we understand there were a lot of problems, but we now we need to offer something new, uh, some new institutions that would uh, allow a new growth model for the majority of the humanity. And that could, uh, I mean, th that's the core of everything. And in the context of this uh, progressive universalist uh, project, perhaps the concept of decolonization may also play uh, a new important progressive part. Obviously, one of the main things that we like to discuss on, on this podcast, and I think that uh, something that uh, you know I'm personally very interested in is this concept of memory um, and historical memory. Um, and I think uh, this is like a central question um, that has been kind of alluded to throughout our conversation today, but something I want to touch on a little bit more directly. Um, and, and first and foremost, um, obviously, in, in the context of uh, what's going on in Ukraine and then throughout the whole post-Soviet world, um, memory and historical memory um, is a very important instrument and weapon and tool that's utilized by a variety of forces. Um, and in the course of this, uh, you know, current conflict in Ukraine, um, in the in the post, uh, especially in post Maidan Ukraine, but even before that, um, memory conflicts between um, not only within Ukraine itself, but between Ukraine and other states, with Poland, with the Russian Federation, um, um, have been very, very high strung and and also very central to how politics on the ground get articulated. Um, and interestingly enough, in the same sense, um, in countries outside of the post-Soviet space, um, left-wing struggles, uh, historical memory is also very important, right? That to push forward some kind of new politics, um, we have to take very seriously not only the struggles that have come before, but develop counter memories to the kind of um, you know institutions, apparatuses um, that we're opposing. And so, I guess the question that I want to like maybe wrap this up with is the decolonization framework in the post-Soviet context um, begins to contest the basis of you know socialism itself the history of marxism and even the history of a kind of like you know universalist project that ukrainians themselves were participating in um how do we um sort of 
create a vision of reclamation of the past that can move forward. That's not just simple nostalgia, but is actually something that can mobilize the past in order to sort of do something uh, revolutionary and progressive and forward-looking in the future. And what is the task and what is the sort of lessons that we can learn from the post-Soviet space and from outside of the post-Soviet in in Latin America and in the West uh, on this question of like reclaiming memory, mobilizing it for something, and also like defending um, our own revolutionary uh, memories? I think, I mean, memory is crucially important. Memory, even in the short term, when I speak of sort of recent Latin American history, when I speak of these sort of explosions of, of struggle and the way that they're then built into and, and sort of channeled into um, transformative, uh, you know, transformative uh, reforms and, and, and efforts, this is very much about maintaining the energy and the memory of, uh, you know, of struggle, of repression, um, the way that that plugs into long-term traditions of struggle is essential, right? And and so, I mean, even in the very short term, historical memory is crucial. Memory of massacres, memory of, you know, where the origins of these moments and these struggles came from. Um, In the longer term, it becomes very um, daunting in certain places. I mean, I live in the United States, right, where there is, of course, a history of struggle, um, but where uh, we sort of conspicuously lack the kind of uh, of sort of revolutionary traditions that other countries, you know, uh, enjoy. That's built on, you know, on material conditions. That's built on sort of the the segregation of territory and population, which, um, you know, uh, leads, you know, the vast majority of white America in, in particular to have no connection whatsoever to those histories of struggle. Um, so I think those things are, uh, you know, essential. Um, but it also raises questions about, and here I think for me, um, decoloniality uh, um, is, is, is complicated in the sense that on the one hand, there are anti-Marxist elements of it, just as there are anti-Marxist elements of indigenous struggles occasionally. Um, but there are also crucial questions when it comes to interrogating as well, what we mean by modernity. Right. What we mean by progress, what we mean by the sort of uh, this sort of forward looking conception um, that, that, that you speak of, um, because, it, it, you know, I think it requires us to be a little more um, critical of um, things that were previously accepted as um, essential to our modernizing vision. Right. Um, things that were intimately bound up with the global capitalist sort of modernizing order um, and all of the sort of, uh, you know, colonial elements of that. Um, but I think the, you know, for me, at least in the, in the long term and moving forward, what that means is it, it allows a, you know, for a, an interrogation of those categories, you know, in, in, in the way that we are Marxist, right? But we're Marxists who are thinking um, in, in new and renewed ways about, uh, about indigenous Marxism, about third world Marxism, about what this means in relation to the land, about what this means in relation toward uh, the global structure of colonialism and not simply the sort of uh, maybe the teleological linearity that certain kind of Marxism, you know, once had relied upon. Um, it means that we're thinking about how to kind of cycle um, you know, back to and back through um, traditions of, say, communal governance in indigenous communities across Latin America, say, which retain, retain a great deal of importance as guides, right, for thinking through 
um, you know, what the future could look like. These are, of course, questions that Marx himself was confronted with, you know, when, uh, you know, when he was thinking of, you know, Russian communal structures, when he was dealing with questions of what it would mean to take an element of the so-called past and look at that as a stepping, uh, stepping stone for the future. And so I think these are crucial questions that we need to understand at the same time. And, and this is, I think, uh, you know, a thread throughout this conversation. These are not just ideas, they're also material questions, right? Many of these things that we're seeing in terms of crises of representation, of the left have everything to do with material transformations of the world. Um, and one of the very difficult things we need to do is to reevaluate how to rebuild um, these conceptions, these traditions, these reference points in a way that's faithful to what people are seeing in their, in their lives, right? There is a saying by one German artist uh, of the first half of the 20th century, I just can't, can't recall his name right now, but uh, the saying says that uh, the future earlier was also better. So the uh, speaking about memories, that the 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 memory when which we had as the like the last Soviet generation, and which was precisely about the future, which was optimistic, which was uh, actually bright. Uh, so the, 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 the contrasting this with the current mood, where it became kind of like typical to expect that the next year is going to be even worse than the year which has just ended, and that we are just uh, even afraid of what's going to happen in 2024, and are we even going to be alive until 2024 uh, and certain developments of the war in Ukraine. So uh, I mean that's, that's a huge contrast. So I. I, I I, I totally agree that there is a lot to discuss about the, what exactly is progress right now, what exactly is supposed to be the modernity project, what, what should be our forward-looking project right now. But the, 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 that's exactly the, the, the core question for the left-wing discussion. And... Uh, we need to we need to concentrate on them because it's a lot which depends on our uh, on our capacity to find some plausible and convincing answers to, to, to these questions. And uh, I'm not sure to which to, in which exactly way we can use our memories, but uh, that I'm just thinking that it was not that. Uh, it, it, it's not that uncommon, actually, and uh, I mean the left is, is so often accused of being kind of like nostalgic and thinking about the glory of the Bolshevik Revolution, or, uh, how the Keynesian welfare state worked so well uh, in the post-war thirty years, and uh, but uh, I mean uh, I, I'm, I'm looking, for example, at the Ukrainian nationalists. They uh, are very effective in in. in the, using the history of the Ukrainian radical nationalist movement in the interbellum uh, period. And they don't have any problem with that, actually. They were actually capable to mainstream the uh, symbolism of the fascist movement in the, in the, in the contemporary uh, country, which actually lived through the atrocities of uh, of Nazi occupation, which uh, supposedly had uh, a huge uh, resistance to any uh, 
revival of the radical nationalists, but that's, that's, that's uh, what happens now. And the thing that when completely unimaginable in the uh, post-war, I mean, in post-Second World War period, uh, are happening, are happening right now. So uh, being kind of like... Uh, always uh, kind of like feeling guilty that we are thinking about the past, that we find some inspiration in what, what's happening in the Soviet Union, in what uh, the social democratic movements were capable to achieve in the Western Europe, is uh, is, is not actually something, something bad necessarily. If we uh, find a way how to utilize these memories in the in the contemporary struggles, how to make them uh, the symbolism of these memories, these uh, lessons, uh, important again, and uh, I mean that, that earlier earlier that worked, and uh, we could, for example, recall that uh, Bolsheviks were indeed like using a lot of uh, terminology symbolism of the. French Revolution of 1917-89, and uh, they used it not simply for some, I mean, Tolkienist uh, reconstructionism, obviously, but uh, just think about how Leon Trotsky used the concept of Thermidor to analyze the degradation of the Soviet Union, uh, how they were thinking about uh, themselves as contemporary Jacobins, and uh, so there can be different ways to to use memory, and, and some are possibly could be useful, and uh, we need to find uh, better ways for that. I don't have any, any like definite or like concrete answer how to do this, uh, but I would defend the uh, necessity to discuss how to work with that and not simply to, to claim that uh, the uh, positive uh, accounts of uh, the left victories in the past are necessarily something uh, regressive, nostalgic, in a bad meaning of that, war, of that word, and uh, only damages the left. Not necessarily. 